0: in earlier years against various countries, Egypt, Ecuador, uh, again Venezuela and Russian Federation. But it is not just investment law. In human rights law, uh, perhaps the more obvious examples are somewhat reminiscent of investment arbitration, like in the Yukos case. But there are also cases beyond it. Um, Council of Europe's Committee on the Execution of Judgments, for example, noted that last year Albania had allocated 1.2 billion euros to address certain systemic issues in a judicial system arising out of implementation of judgments. In the interstate setting, uh, the uh, digest of U.S. state practice recorded that the United States had reached a settlement with Iran to the tune of $1.5 billion relating to pending claims in the uh, Iran-United States Claims Tribunal. And the International Court of Justice is at the moment considering Albeit after several postponements, uh, the reparations stage in the armed activities case uh, between Congo and Uganda. Now, slightly unhelpfully for my point, uh, the pleadings and position of parties are not available until the the oral pleadings actually take place, but... I think it would be surprising in light of the merits of finding on the breaches on growth on the use of force and humanitarian law and plundering of natural resources if that were not to be a multi-billion case. Uh, So to draw all of these points together, these cases rendered in the last four, five years seem to me to raise an interesting question, whether international law at a general level has anything to say about the amount of reparation by reference to its effects on the respondent state as well as the peoples of the respondent responsible state. I think the Starting point, and I will not patronize you with putting it on the slide. We all know factory of Chorzo very well. Uh, The starting point is by the Permanent Court of International Justice. The very uh, corrective justice take on what responsibility is about. Reparation must, as far as possible, wipe out all the consequences of the illegal act and reestablish the situation which would in all probability have existed if that act had not been committed. So that is, uh, I think, as close to corrective justice explanation of tort law as one can get. Our focus is on the relationship between the victim and the responsible entity. We are not really hugely interested about the broader policies or the effect on responsible entity, we are interested in redressing and repairing the injury. Uh, (coughs) I want to argue that this rule uh, fails to reflect uh, modern normative sensibilities in international law and law of state responsibility. And I want to make that argument in three parts. I will first look at how the International Law Commission considered the matter, as though the few who have looked at law of state responsibility will appreciate the four years in the last century when uh, state responsibility law was shaped into what custom is. The four reports uh, by Judge Crawford Uh, debated in the International Law Commission, supplemented by comments in the Sixth Committee. So that is where we look for intellectual contours of state responsibility. So that is the first point that I will look at. Secondly, in the most formalist manner possible, I will imagine, I will examine the sources argument uh, to consider whether international law permits an exception to the principle of four reparations for cases where the compensation could be considered crippling on the responsible state or its peoples. And finally, I will consider, having concluded on the formalist point, the future, and I will suggest uh, that it branches in three directions, and we will most likely find ourselves in the least satisfactory branch. Let me start um, with um, this. Um, It would, of course, hugely simplify uh, the debate in the International Law Commission to suggest that it was just uh, between two distinguished international lawyers who now find themselves uh, colleagues on the International Court of Justice, but I will take for the purpose of somewhat simplifying the argument their positions <clears throat> as reflecting the two visions on the matter. So we have Judge Crawford on the one side and Judge Benuna on the other. Uh, if we look at articles Uh, as they were adopted in 2001, the 2001 International Commission's Articles on State Responsibility for International Wrongful Acts, that I will refer to in short as the 2001 Articles. Uh, The closest that we get to the point that interests me is in Article 31, and in particular under Commentary 5 to that article article thirty one provides in terms reflecting custom that the responsible state is under an obligation to make full reparation for the injury caused by the internationally wrongful act and commentary five, which sets out forms of reparation square uh, sorry commentary five to article thirty four which sets out forms of reparation, squarely addresses the concern and i quote that the principle of full reparation may lead to disproportionate and even crippling requirements so far the responsible state is concerned, end of quote, and considers therefore, beginning of quote, whether the principle of proportionality should be articulated as an aspect of the obligation to make full reparation, end of quote. The response by the International Law Commission is that there is no general principle regarding crippling reparation. Instead, it operationalizes itself in different ways for different forms. For restitution, um, you cannot go in an entirely disproportionate manner. For satisfaction, you cannot be offensive. While for compensation, the bit that interests me, uh, the only exclusion if, is of indirect and remote damage. So technical, rather than substantive in this sense. Why did the International Law Commission come to this conclusion? And here so we have the two possible takes on the matter. On the one hand, we have... Uh, On the one hand, we have, alright, so I think I've actually been lagging a little bit, or rather running a little bit ahead of the slides. Uh, this is the bit uh, from the commentary number five, uh, which suggests that restitution may not be disproportionate, satisfaction may not be disproportionate. Well, compensation, you do not have a limitation on compensations amount as such. You get at it uh, through remoteness and indirectness. International Law Commission leaves it open, but excludes by necessary implication the argument that if after you exclude indirect and remote compensation, it is still disproportionate by implication that is not a problem that law deals with. Life is not a rose garden. This is not an issue that is addressed at the level of secondary rules. Now, there are two ways of looking at the matter. The position that eventually prevailed in the International Law Commission was put forward by Judge Crawford in his third report. And of course, it would again simplify the complicated dynamic to say that International Law Commission's articles are just Judge Crawford's uh, reports slightly summarized and with slightly fewer footnotes. Uh, That is not a point that I'm making as a general proposition, but for this particular point, there is something to be said for that. So if you compare with what Judge Crawford says in his report, in his interventions in the Commission, and with what the International Law Commission says eventually, there is a direct line of thinking and authority. So what does Crawford say? Well, uh, he says a number of things. He says, first... uh, And looking from the perspective of late 1990s, it's not at all obvious that it is a big problem. Most compensation claims are not that large, and he's looking in particular at the relatively trivial uh, human rights awards. And secondly, if they are large, uh, then uh, the very economic consequences of peace-type thinking about the Versailles Agreement suggest that smart people will not push their outrageous claims to the maximum, because the lesson that the world has taken from Versailles and post-Versailles is that economic ruination of states leads to very unpleasant consequences. So if such claims do arise, smart states will not press them. And thirdly... Crawford is quite optimistic about international politics. He's looking at United Nations Compensation Commission in particular that has its own inbuilt safeguards set out in decisions by the Security Council. So in short, uh, when Crawford looks at extraordinary damage claims, he thinks that first they don't really arise. Secondly, if they arise, smart people will not press them. And thirdly, international politics are sensible and will provide institutional safeguards. Uh, I mean, I think it is, uh, it it wouldn't be unfair to say that uh, these propositions seem slightly less persuasive nowadays than they were in late 1990s. As I suggested, um, the extraordinary claims do arise, states do press them. Indeed, one of the claims that was pressed in the Ethiopia-Eritrea Claims Commission case uh, on damages that the commission considered to raise troubling consequences for both states were argued by Crawford himself on behalf of Ethiopia. And thirdly, we have a new ruthless animal in the international legal order, non-state actor, which is no longer uh, bound by the restrictions of repeat players. Non-state actors are unconcerned about the potential obligations that may be imposed against them as a regard of international obligations. And indeed, in the investment law context, if anything, the active repeat non-state actors would actually be quite pleased uh, to show states for deterrence purposes that sometimes you know, crippling a state might be good for uh, the morale of investors. So the institutional assumptions are really not there, the less uh, said about the wisdom of international politics, I think, the better. So the intellectual assumptions underpinning the International Law Commission, I think, have shifted away a little bit. It is not a criticism of the Commission's call in late 1990s, you know, it was a perfectly, perfectly sensible take of the previous century and what had taken place there. But the increased judicialization, the increased shift in the direction of particularly non state actors bringing economic damage claims undermines these intellectual assumptions. We therefore have to also consider the other possible take on the matter. And that was provided by uh, Judge Benuna uh, in an earlier intervention, so we have to win the clock back to early 1990s. So this is pre crawford Times uh, discussion of late reports of Arangio Ruiz and Judge Benuna in some ways manages to put much more perceptively the finger on our contemporary issues. economic injury claims, particularly long-term contracts, and uh, the great interest in economic disparities of states. So that is an argument that does not carry the International Law Commission. Uh, Judge Benuna, while re-elected in 1996, crucially departs to the International Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia and therefore is not present in 1999, when the crucial debate takes place. Another one of the great uh, critics of of full reparation, Christian Tomochat, is not re-elected at all. So there is an interesting interpersonal dynamic uh, that also explains the way for International Law Commission dealt with the matter. All right. Um, that is, incidentally, the last, uh, the last slide. Uh, from now onwards, it will be just, uh, just my argument going on. Um, what does current international law say on the matter? Because we haven't got an authoritative statement on whether uh, Commentary 5 to Article 34 is reflective of custom. So, I think uh, in the next uh, 15 minutes, I want to go through, in the most boringly formalist manner possible, uh, the first uh, three subparagraphs of Article 38.1 of the International Court Statute, Custom, Treaty, General Principles. Let us start with Customer International Law. What does custom say on the matter? And I think we can look for custom here in six (coughs) places. Three directly, three sort of trying to catch a glimpse of the passing ship by analogy. The first and perhaps the most obvious source of practice, something that the International Law Commission and intervening states uh, were quite uh, conscious about was the whole 20th century practice on war operations, an enormous amount of practice there, a great deal of practice after the First World War, after the Second World War, and also in the 1990s in the United Nations uh, Compensation Commission. Pierre Darjean and Andreas Gattini have very thoughtful analysis on that matter. And, you know, there are sort of bits and pieces scattered around the treaty practice on these matters. Uh, Even in the Versailles uh, Peace Treaty, uh, the great war guilt clause in Article 231 is followed by the statement in Article 232, Paragraph 2, that the resources of Germany are not adequate to make complete reparation for such loss and damage. In the Potsdam Agreement, uh, reparation was limited by the so-called first charge principle to, and I quote, leave enough resources to enable the German people to subsist without external assistance, I think it's. Isn't this delightful honesty that you care for people not because for their own sake, but because you wouldn't want to spend money for them. Uh, San Francisco Treaty with Japan, I quote, recognize that resources of Japan are not presently sufficient if it does maintain a viable economy to make complete reparation for all such damage and suffering, and at the same time meet its other obligations, end of quote. And the United Nations Compensation Commission uh, explicitly refers to, in relevant resolutions, requirements of the people of Iraq, its payment capacity, and the needs of the Iraqi economy, which in practice meant a set percentage of yearly proceeds from the sale of Iraqi oil, which was sort of toggled by the United Nations uh, Security Council. So there are three reasons why it is a little bit tricky to assess a custom, the customary value here. Two are classic, and one is uh, peculiar to the particular issue. The two classic sort of customary raw chestnuts are First, identifying the commonality of practice, because practice is so incredibly varied. Treaties differ among themselves. Uh, They are hard to interpret. You know, the point that I made about the San Francisco Treaty with Japan, it might seem as if reparations are merely postponed, but if we look at the treaty in its entirety, it also has huge uh, waiver clauses. It is really inconsistent, even regarding the same conflicts uh, after the Second World War, in particular, even within the European theatre of war, axes of parties were treated in a significantly different uh, manner. Um, so it is hard to uh, arrive at a great deal of certainty about the underlying principles. So. At most, as Brownlee suggested and Pierre Darjean sort of suggested, perhaps what we take away from this is that accounts of the needs of the state and its population should be considered in some way. The second challenge is the classic treaty custom question. Is this suggestive of custom or a departure from custom? And what makes it particularly tricky, and this is a third point, that uh, this puzzle was shared by the key actors. So in the International Law Commission, Thomas said, and I quote, the idea of placing a limit on the notion of fore-reparation was firmly rooted in current-day positive international law. End of quote. Crawford felt precisely the opposite thing. For him, the real lesson of Versailles was policy wisdom and that uh, the great players after the Second World War were generous. They could have insisted on reparation, but they didn't insist on reparation. So, full reparation was still the right rule. And for yet others, like the Ethiopia-Eritrea Claims Commission, which was the only one to seriously consider this issue in the judicial setting, the whole century was an entire waste of time. Peculiar political considerations, peculiar judicial elements, so nothing at all could be taken from it. And indeed, if we look at what states said in the Sixth Committee, including those that had been parties to these treaties, there was no consistent treatment. So Germany, for example, noted... Uh, and I quote that in the context of violations having such disastrous effects as war, settlements, if they have been obtained, refrain from awarding full reparation for every single damage sustained. End of quote. Well, the Australian representative, and I quote, was unaware of any state practice, international rule, or legal decision supporting the exception. So overall, I think international law metaphorically throws. Up its hands in the air. This practice doesn't count either way. The second stream of practice uh, goes to the debates about the ILC draft. What did states say in the Sixth Committee? Uh, and here, sort of, we have a wonderfully symmetrical division of state practice. On the one hand, we have the US, the UK, France, Australia, Israel and Japan who see no exception of crippling compensation. It is permissible under international law. And on the other hand, we have Bahrain, Italy, Germany, Chile and Czech Republic Who think in slightly different ways that there may be something for not awarding crippling compensation under international law? If you think about these states, we don't really get a sense of overwhelming practice either way. By pure numbers, there is more support for there being no exception at all, but if we zero in on who these states are, they are the global north. So if we consider Uh, diversity of perspectives, an element for establishing the widespread nature, then Bahrain, Italy, Germany, Chile and Czech Republic are more representative of the international community. And again, I think we come back to the same point as regarding war operations. This practice doesn't seriously weigh this way or that way. The third strand of practice comes out of International Dispute Settlement. and This is where we might expect to see a little bit of these issues. What do states say when they are faced by crippling compensation claims? Because that that would really be the true gold standard for determining what the rule is. Do they challenge such claims by reference to the principle that crippling compensation cannot be awarded? Do they assert such claims themselves? Here we have three substrata of practice. Uh, The first comes from interstate dispute settlement, in particular the Ethiopia-Eritrea Claims Commission, where both states asserted crippling compensation claims, and the Commission, seemingly proprio motu, without reference to argument by either party, considered by reference to international covenants in particular that crippling compensation could not be awarded. Uh, it was pitched at a point of principle. Uh, they said that they might have to cap compensation so it doesn't go too far, but eventually the calculation of compensation led to a sum that was not crippling. So what do we uh, make of uh, these awards? So those of you who have looked at the Ethiopia-Eritrea Claims Commission may recall that uh, on this point they're essentially identical arguments and identical decisions on both sides. So I'll just refer to them as awards. On this point, I'm a little bit... Struggling. So, if one wanted to say that this is good authority, um, we would note, I think, sort of look at the factors that the ILC noted in its uh, 2018 conclusions on the termination of customary law, the nature of the tribunal, unanimity of the decision, quality of counsel, all those go in favor of it being an important source. Uh, I think an additional point uh, perhaps a slightly counterintuitive one is to look at who the people were who were the commissioners and uh, they were particularly familiar with the united states perspective some of them had served in the state department some of them had argued american cases in various tribunals so in particular uh, commissioners uh, aldrich uh, crook and reed United States itself interestingly, had been one of the great opponents of the limitation of crippling compensation, so I think that the way to pitch it would be to say that if a unanimous tribunal uh, peopled by the old State Department hands goes out and volunteers a rule that there can be no crippling compensation, that is a persuasive argument because they certainly know where United States is coming from indeed, John Crook who was one of the members of the tribunal, was the person who was the representative of the U.S. in the Sixth Committee, who said that there can be no such limitation to crippling compensation. So even if such people think that the rule cannot stand, that surely is a strong argument. The strongest counter-argument is to look at what happened after 2007. I mean, That is, again, the ultimate test of validity, uh, you know, as in three musketeers. What happened in the next 20 years? Uh, and other things from the Commission have had reasonably good shelf life. They have been invoked approvingly. This award has sunk without a trace. The best thing that has been said about it was in uh, last year's report on uh, to the ILC Regarding environmental damage, where the I thought, put quite delightfully, that the award was, quote-unquote, interesting for, quote-unquote, not following the usual approach. That, I think, is damning to say that something is interesting. Uh, so that, I think, uh, again, uh, counts very much against the existence of the rule. I will not say too much about the human rights practice. I don't think it really leads us in a clear direction. Uh, Mostly the claims are not large. When they are large, states are either capable of bearing them, as Russia, or we have particular institutional structure, like in my example for Albania. The particularly interesting uh, case study is investment law, because investment law is the field where the challenges would likely to be expected. So, what does Venezuela, Pakistan, Ecuador, Egypt, Russia say when they see a multi-billion claim going their way? And that, I think, is really the strongest argument for there being no such rule in international law, because they don't say you cannot award compensation, we have other priorities. There are hugely sophisticated and subtle arguments about valuation. There were some of the very early, now seemingly archived cases like CME and Czech Republic, where Ian Brownlee, in his uh, separate opinion, alludes something. But you don't see such arguments in the modern cases. And I think it's interesting to speculate why we don't see them, uh, whether it goes sometimes uh, to the particular relationship of outsourced counsel, and their focus on the particular case, while generation of customary law might require a more long term vision. Is it a prisoner's dilemma sense, or rather or rather not not prisoner's dilemma, collective action problem, that to establish a customary rule, everybody would have to argue it and it would ultimately benefit, but every individual state that argues it will face the danger of being a little bit Uh, ridiculed Um, so there is a little bit of an incentive against arguing possibly and I think that that is I mean anecdotally which could be the case that it's actually better for states to have a normative principle in the back of their arguments to put in policy terms that you seriously cannot expect uh, Pakistan or Venezuela or Ecuador to pay such an award, rather than to articulate as a weak legal argument. And because valuation enables considerable discretion for tribunals, a strong policy normative point is preferable to a weak legal one. But whatever the rationale, such arguments are not made, and that, I think, is a strong argument for what custom is on the question. In short, if you are being asked for 8 billion and if you don't say you cannot award it, that strongly suggests that there is no rule on which you could rely because otherwise you would have invoked it. Uh, Let me deal rather briefly with the bits where we can look on other fields of international law by analogy. We could look to compensation in primary rules to try to see whether there is inexorable trend towards construction of compensation in particular ways. That, I don't think, gets us too far. We come back with the unsurprising point that different primary rules have different standards. In the investment law, it's mostly full. In human rights law, it's mostly not. And in environmental law, you mostly have caps. So it doesn't really nudge us in any direction. The second field that I looked at is sovereign debt, not a field that I'm a great expert in, but after some research seems to lead back to the same dynamic and the same policy dilemmas. The generalized statements that wise creditors would not try to bankrupt uh, their debtors, but some will. And sometimes politics will work, but sometimes they won't. And obvious and clear legal principles are consciously being kept from emerging. But the third field of analogy is a more interesting one, and that uh, comes from responsibility of international organizations. As many of you will know, the project that eventually culminated in the 2011 articles on responsibility for uh, uh, wrongful acts by international organizations, has in some ways very similar rules and on content of responsibility identical. So it is interesting to see what states and international organizations said about the issue, because the question did come up. Um, um, Pelé um, Quoted in 2007 a delightful quip by Jose Alvarez that international organizations were purposefully kept by their members at the edge of bankruptcy, quote-unquote. And so he sort of raised the question. So in most major cases, international organizations were unable to discharge their obligation to pay corporations because they lacked resources to do so. Uh, The reaction is really, again, damning for a possible imitation of the rule. International organizations intervened. The international organizations said that that was an issue. They really did lack resources. But the punchline was that they needed a different rule. They were different from states. You could cripple states because they have the power of taxation. International organizations do not have that. So by implication, it enforces the rule that states would have to pay reparation in full. So custom, in short, is largely inconclusive, but on important points it comes out in favor of no limitation being there for crippling compensation. Uh, that is what investment practice tells us. That is what non-invocation of ethiopia tells us. That is what Alain Pellet and Jose Alvarez and international organizations tell us. Uh, Treaty law, I think, can be disposed fairly shortly. Uh, One could conceivably construct an argument via the international covenants, as the Ethiopia-Eritrea Claims Commission tried to do. But the problem, as always, in international practice and arguments, is that no actors are actually doing it. Even human rights actors, which... uh, sometimes perhaps a little bit more on the creative side that orthodox formalists will necessarily approve, have not argued the point. Uh, they don't like large awards. They don't like large awards by investors, uh, rendered to investors. But solutions are not really pitched at the level of waiver or capping or anything at all. So... There may be, I guess, sort of sources from which you could nudge a rule, but it has not been uh, gendered in that direction by any actors. So finally, general principles do not help us majorly either. From the national legal systems, uh, there's a delightful nod in the International Law Commission's discussion of Japanese civil procedure rules on clothing, bedding, furniture, and kitchen utensils required for lifehood, food, and fuel that would be exempted from attachment. But Crawford said that that is not really something that goes to the secondary rule in the technical sense of the word, and therefore you cannot really replicate it at the international level. And I think that the same problem arises if we look at general principles of international law proper. Self-determination, permanent sovereignty of natural resources, existence of states uh, might require us reading practice in a more favorable light, but there is no practice. Uh, To go very Shakespearean about it, nothing will come of nothing. If there is nothing at all to be favorable about, you cannot weave a rule out of it, even with the most favorable squint. Let me now uh, conclude in the four minutes. What is the future? And I think there are three possible futures. The first future is the present, and that is the most uh, likely future. Uh, the rule will be even further reinforced every next failure by a respondent state to challenge crippling compensation further reinforces the lack of uh, such a rule the second um branch is to accept the soundness of Crawford's point um Uh, I think so essentially what he makes sort of by reference here to limitations in particular liability regimes that this is not something that really belongs at the level of general customary secondary rule. You have to tweak these matters on a primary regime, primary rule, institution basis. And that is certainly possible. I mean investment law is perhaps the most Obvious example, uh, that could be done in the ancestral reform process. There have been some very mild hints in that direction by Pakistan and Nigeria, and that is certainly uh, possible to do in the technical sense of the word. The third and the most interesting question is whether it is possible to create, introduce an exception at the level of general customary rule. And I think it is possible. Uh, The type of rule that I have in mind borrows in structure from rules on equity in law of the sea and international water law. There's a little bit of an interesting historical pedigree in response to uh, Judge Benunes' intervention in 1990, Alain Pellet. For whom it was the first intervention in the International Law Commission said essentially, well, that will never work. You know that you have that in continental shelter limitation, and that is a mess. Now, how could that ever work? Of course, we now know that that can work uh, fairly well as long as we properly conceptualize the relationship between interpretation, application, and the factors. And I think that the way to think about it would be a similar one, to have a core rule, an equity-based exception to full operation regarding crippling compensation cases. The second layer of relevant factors in application, because there are certainly extraordinary hard questions here. Does crippling apply to state, (coughs) peoples, or both? Does it apply in the same or different manner to different states? So is a billion the same thing if it is against the US, against Pakistan, against Russia? Are we trying to prevent a relative crippling of sorts or an absolute diminution in the amount of resources available? Uh, How is the rule affected if we are in a situation where The claimant is also an impoverished state, like Ethiopia-Eritrea Claims Commission. Uh, What happens if the wrongful act in question is the cause of this uh, status, like in many war claims? What happens if the object in question could, in principle, be subject to restitution, like investments or plundered property, how do we operationalize it in dispute settlement context where we may have different tribunals with confidentiality rules? So I'm certainly not suggesting that this is an easy walkover. They're extraordinarily hard, practical questions, but ones that, in my view, can be dealt with in the normal manner of international law. We have the technically-based principle. We identify factors on application, through application, and then we just, you know... Model on as uh, international law mostly does, as long as we accept that there may be a rather longish period until the equitable principle actually starts working properly. Uh, but just as with continental shelf delimitation, it may eventually be worth it. So possibly I could finish on a slightly more inspiring note, but uh, why don't I stop here? Thank you very much, you